this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Here we are. To know that it's feeding time at the zoo, so at any point... There will be animals, there will be creatures. Be, there are going to be creatures. And so, or do you mean feeding time at the zoo that you brought snacks for me just in case? So we've got some pecans, we've got some chocolate. i got chocolate. And, you know... Because it's not cocktail hour yet. No, but it's darn close. Yeah, we're yeah. getting close. This changes everything, though, for the podcast. Because, Why is that? Well, because we have been doing the podcast upstairs in Alistair's office, so now we're downstairs. We're in the library, my office, which I would do a little video tour, except that it also happens to be... Oh, it's wrapping Just station. a couple days before Christmas, and the entire library table is covered with um, presents, which is exciting. It is. Yeah, it well. is. Um, so, <laughs> we... <laughs> dog. There's a dog right here. That would be Ziggy. Ziggy the dog. Um, so, you know, Miranda Castro has a Ziggy. Miranda and Ellen have a Ziggy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, anyway, but we... So, what are we going to talk about tonight? Conundrum. You want to call it conundrum. I want to call it um, where the domestic physician meets... Best. The commercial reality. Oh, wow. You went there. Okay, yeah. And... And how we'll yeah, and how we've got to work it out. So look, so as we as we get started on this, I I, I want to start by saying you know we've got a we have um, a pact that we make with ourselves and also with our students with our with the AG and home community, and that is you know don't talk trash about people unless you want people to talk trash about you. Mm. Um, so so anything that we talk about today, and I and I really mean this is. Um, there's no judgment. There's no, no, none of that. Because what we're, what we're really trying to do is to put out and contextualize a very real challenge that we face in 20, in the realm of 21st century homeopathy. Right. How does that sound? I like it. So, so when we, when we address this, so we've got issues around economics, you've got pharmacies that need to make money, you've got legal issues You've got sort of distribution issues where are things placed in, in the stores and that vying for shelf space, right? So this idea of sort of... You mean homeopathic products. Homeopathic products, if mm. they are indeed homeopathic, right? Because you've also got mm. the, the misrepresentation of the word. Um, and then you've got best practices in how we use these products. And then you've got a whole bunch of sick people. More sick people... Then you then, can poke a stick at. Or even shake a stick at. I wouldn't poke them. Poke a stick. You're going to poke them with a stick? No, then they're going to really need a remedy. It's the traditional expression. No, is it? Yeah. We say shake a stick. No. So, okay. Overruled. Overruled. Um, Plug off. I hope the lighting is... <laughs> One thing I really liked about the, the podcast just being audio was... Yeah. I could be in my cozies upstairs in Al's office sitting on his little chair. It was your idea. It actually wasn't my idea. It was Sherry's idea. Turn off the I have to turn off Slack. Okay. 
That's the HHN clinic with a lot of things happening. It's humming. It's humming. So, okay, good. Yeah, you go and then, because I'll be contextualizing it from a different point of view. Well, why don't you, you start? All right. <laughs> These are um, roasted, unsalted pecans. This book. Domestic physician? No. What do you have there? Domestic physician. Oh, you do. Constantine Herring. Mm-hmm. Nice little short book. And this book was published, it's interesting, I'm going to say... 1840s? It actually says 1836, hmm. which wow. is amazing because That's... he's just really just been on the ground for a couple of years. So he well, writes... actually, it makes sense because it would have been a time when there were very few homeopaths. Very few homeopaths, no schools. No schools. All right, 1835, yeah. first school. Um, and... Um, and a very irregular um, level of and standards of education. Oh, totally. When I it mean, comes until, to medicine. I mean, Flexner wasn't published until 1920. But a gigantic and growing and chaotic population. Totally. All crammed into the east coast of the U.S. And, and medicine, then starting to burst through. Right. And medicine and the different medical modalities were interspersed. So you would have a practitioner of hydrotherapy, Thompsonian practitioner, you know, your traditional herbalist, the allopathic doctor, you'd have people who were who were hawking patent medicines. Yeah. You had the beginning of the sort of mainstreaming of um, uh, what we would refer to as mineral remedies, but done in their, you know, like chemical um, uh, compounds that were being sold. Yeah. Chaotic times. Yeah. And pretty, pretty... Um, no standards, no licensure. Average practices. Oh, yeah. And so then Herring sells this book. Yep. And it's interesting because it's not a book that's pitched at the mum. It's not a book that's pitched for the doctor either. See, it's all highbrow. When you read it, it's yeah. like this is almost inaccessible if you are... Uh, well, I'll get you the quote here. Quite uh, but I don't want to lose mine. So this is from. Uh, sorry, I'm looking at my notes um, for my thesis. So this is from a book, Naomi Rogers' book, I believe, who wrote a book about the history of Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia. It's called An Alternative Path. And I think, and I'm sorry, I wasn't prepared for this quote. I have another. But this is, in my notes, it says domestic quote here. Oh, this is from Herring's thesis. Materia Medica is to Hahnemann what pathology was to Hippocrates. That's interesting. Anyway, domestic physician quote, quote, no one can be a successful disciple of Hahnemann who is not well-versed in the learning of the um, Eidal schools, E-I-D-A-L. Um, and it would be just as impossible for him to act judiciously without a knowledge of anatomy, surgery, and materia medica, together with mineralogy, chemistry, and botany, for a man ignorant of navigation and, se and seamanship to carry a vessel with safety into port without a compass or chart. Uh, that's really interesting that the person who wrote, who has a book called The Domestic Physician, yeah. that a hundred and some years later, or it has been re- imagined to be a license for anyone to practice homeopathy or to use these remedies for themselves in their own home. So let's just think about that. Yeah. Because medicine, medicine, go back 500 years, was yeah. 
was cloaked in Latin and hidden. And Up until the Thomsonian era, who said Thomson... Ex- well, a little bit before that, because in the English tradition, Culpeper... Yeah, I'm talking about America, right. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, we should explain that. So the idea was to move away from the, the, the well, German and Latin yeah. into bringing it into the people's native tongue, so the, in, into the English tradition was a way to bring medicine to the level of, of the people. And you could do that with a printing press, so it was a big deal. Totally, yeah, totally. And so there had been various attempts at trying to, you know, as happens with today in all sorts of different areas... Let's demystify it, let's reveal it, let's get rid of the mythology around it, and let's fix sick people. All right, so there's... Well, because also at that time, sorry, it's a move away from sort of these philosophical constructs that were happening... um, Hello, Hildy. This is Hildegard of Bingen. (laughs) That's cat number two. Um, Behave yourself. so So this idea was a movement away from the attempts to create a philosophical construct to explain how things work. For example, there was no such thing as germ theory then. There right. was, uh, it, for a time they were called uh, uh, animicules, right? So, so there's this way in which all these sort of, as Hahnemann would say, even in aphorism one, the footnote, so-called systems. Mm. And it moves into... The development of therapeutics. In other words, how do how does medicine interact with problems, and that becomes possible over you know through the arc of the 19th century, when germ theory, bacteriology, pathology, and the development of a system of therapeutics comes into play, because around that time you've got greater diagnostic tools you've got laboratory medicine so you can measure weigh standardize and all of that but all of that is heading towards the direction of this knowledge is expensive it's 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 technical Mm -hmm. and we need skilled people to be able to interpret it and do it right right and so yeah i think that's a good landing place so and 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 therefore We've got two kind of competing things going on, don't we? We've got a chaotic medical marketplace in America in the early 30s. Yep. And you've got this book that's pitched to the mum, but not written for the mum. I don't think... I think that's not pitched to the mum. Well, it's interesting. Well... Because I think the word domestic... Right. No, no, you're probably right in that that sense, because it's just... It is... um, it's kind of highbrow writing. Yeah, totally. Of the, of the day. I mean, think about the level of education that women had access to in that time. This right. would not be accessible. Yeah. I think this is about the physician using homeopathic medicine in the home, but it's been it's been co-opted in a different way. All right. So that part, I think, is probably true. Now, that is one of many because on here... On this we have a lot of copies of that. No, 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 no. We've got this one. We've got the big one. No, there's different domestic physicians. Not oh, just herring. Yeah. So this one is by Pulter, right? Yeah. Homeopathic domestic physician. Treatment of diseases, wherever you are, around the place, from uh, 1854. Wait, can I see that for a second? Uh-huh. Because I think in one of my talks, I quote something from his introduction. And then you got this puppy. 
Here. So he says, this is actually interesting, though. Yeah. He says, um, the homeopathic domestic physician containing the treatment of diseases. Now, right away, this is, this is an argument in homeopathy, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, the lippy-herring argument, because are you treating diseases or are you treating the person, mm. right? And so right away in Pult's, um, uh, it, just the name of the book, it's the treatment of diseases, with popular explanation of anatomy, physiology, hygiene, and hydropathy, and also an abridged materia medica. This is the sixth edition. This? And illustrated with anatomical plates. Really? Yeah. Wow. I love that. Anatomical plates. Uh, this homeopathic domestic physician, this one is Laurie from 1877. Okay, so that's going to be totally different. Right. By the time you get to 1877. Well, it's bigger and there's no plates, I can tell you right now. I didn't see any in here either. But this is... So the, the point that we're making is that there's a movement, a paradoxical movement, historically, in medicine and in healthcare, that... And homeopathy is right in the thick of it because these domestic physicians sold uh, wildly and with um, and while they might have been pitched towards physicians, they were also sold with the kit. They were also sold with the remedies. They called it a box. The box. And with the box of, what, 10 remedies, 20 remedies, 50 remedies? I'm going to say probably not 50, but it could be. I mean, think about the Civil War boxes, yeah. right? So along comes the Civil War, and you've got accessible battlefield medicine ready to go for whatever drama that you as a, as a jobbing physician, barber, surgeon mm -hmm. has to deal with. Well, would, at that point, at what point would you be both a physician and a surgeon? Because those were the barber surgeons and the physicians were totally separate, yeah, right? Totally. But on the battlefield, maybe not so much. Yeah, can I, I also just, as we as we start to settle in here and sort of contextualize, because you can tell where we're going, um, I, want, I want to talk about traditional medicine. Because in traditional cultures, it's really interesting that the knowledge on how to heal is with every member of the community. Sorry, before you Except, go there... no. Because well, I wasn't paying attention. I'm I really know. sorry. Exactly. Because I saw something that I... Well, okay. you're going to have to wait. I can wait. <laughs> so, wait. in say, in some of the traditional Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, yeah. healing knowledge is a part of community knowledge and individual knowledge. If you scrape your knee, you fix it. If you've got a bit of diarrhea, you everyone knows how to fix it. Mm -hmm. For the serious diseases you call in the shaman mm -hmm. and it's interesting how that might have happened on in australasia uh it this but the same thing is in mayan medicine the mm -hmm. same thing is in north american indian medicine in inuit medicine in mongolian medicine right the shaman in a in a stone age culture this the shaman it, you call on for the specifics and the difficult stuff and that's when Right. You know, you've got your smoke and mantra and dance and trance and, and all of that stuff. That's right. the secret knowledge. And traditionally, the shaman has been the weird one in the village. I mean. The gifted one. You know, the red-headed stepchild. Let the weird one. Don't say that. Well, you know what I mean. But that's. Yeah. But, but the, 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 um, the, the, the person with gifts that traditionally is on the edge. And how many people who are listening to this who are homeopaths are going, I'm the weird one. Yeah, well, they, you know. <laughs> weird ones unite. 
Yeah, I mean... All right. So that's what I wanted to say. And in, in a way, that's been kind of an, in those suppressed medicines, you know, because mm-hmm. all of those medicines have been suppressed. Traditional medicines have been suppressed by conventional medicine to an extent. Um, it that, that dynamic was dealt with naturally within the community. Well, it's, so it's really interesting because there's, I think, another way, another way to talk about it is the idea of sort of home care. So this came up, I was teaching right. um, full-time year one the other day, mm-hmm. and one of the things that um, Dasha asked a great question about, at what point do you just rely on self, you know, on good home care and supportive, you know, things and not give a remedy? And we talked about the fact that you give a remedy when when things are stuck and the vital force doesn't have the wherewithal to move it through. And then, of course, some of those caveats where you give the remedy because the picture is so clear that we know the remedy is an assist for the vital force. It's going to, you know, sort of speed the healing. But this is it. So when is when is the practice of medicine domestic health care? Right. right. It's genius. So, so, and I, I think. think that, okay, now read whatever well, it is. Well, hold on, because no. now you've opened another can of worms. I need a, a ball drink. of wax. It's too early. Um, so, this is really interesting because it intersects with our contemporary culture, which is give a pill. You know, there's a there's this expression yeah. people use in homeopathy, and I know it's done to be cute, but it's like there's a remedy for that. Mm-hmm. There's a remedy for that. <laughs> yeah, there very well might be, but there comes a point when we need to ask when when is a remedy needed, and so we're kind of, it's it's interesting because now you you kind of changed course just a tiny bit, which I think has made this a more dynamic conversation. Well, because I've got to keep you on your toes, because otherwise you just <laughs> you know. I'll go right there. Um, but you brought you you broaden the context a little bit, and so. So I think there's some, the first thing is like, if we just kind of look at ground rules and say, there is a lost art of home care. Now, you know, we have, there are definitely um, people here in America who come from cultures that have not lost that. Mm -hmm. But I think about, you know, I think about my childhood being, you know, raised for a lot of my life with my grandparents' generation. Mm -hmm. There were all sorts of things that they knew and did and um in fact there was my so my aunt so she this this one aunt was married to one of my uncles who had passed and her mother who was much older lived with her so if i was say 12 this woman was like 95 so that would have made her born in the you know i don't know the middle 1800s I don't know, my math, not so good anyway, but yeah, so that's she, right. yeah. So um, <laughs> if you had a sore throat, oh, yeah. you would go to her and she would take, and, and a, I'm thinking about one of my friends who may actually listen to this, who who live next door to her, who would know this. She would take two candles and cross them and put them at your neck and say a thing or two. Oh. That was, you know, traditional. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, that's, that's home, domestic home care with a slice of Catholicism and, Something else in it, right? Sure. Yeah. Not a slice of thick spread. She. Um, but home home but remedies, home care could would be anything from you know we would have you know chicken soup with pastine and an egg 
stracciatella, you would have, you know, and that would be, you know, good home care. Well, I mean, that's, you know, mm. um, but then there would also be, you know, the, the little bits and bobs of herbs and poultices and, mm. you know, all the things that were done. Cabbages. Yeah. Onions. Sure, for sure. You know, putting an onion in a cloth and, you know, castor oil. I mean, these are things that a lot of, you know, people who will be listening to this would recognize because by the time you're listening to this podcast, you're like, of course, castor oil. But if you say that to, you know, random muggles and, you know, around the place. (laughs) Right. So wait, you're criticizing me for saying. Don't say it. And I say random muggles. Random muggles. Nothing wrong with it. That's right. We don't have any listeners that are random muggles. I don't even know who's listening to this. Anyway, so, so there's, so on one hand, let's just say that if we're going to talk about the conundrum, the plural of conundrum is conundrums, not conundra, which I was about to say. That's not a word. I think it's conundrum. Conundrum. So, so a conundrum that we have is in a time where self-care, traditional knowledge passed down through families, especially when families get scattered around the place, that that sort of familial cultural knowledge gets lost. Dissipated, totally. It totally gets dissipated. So then there's a pill for that. And right. whether that pill, because in the culture that we're in, that pill is, you know, God forbid you watch television. It's unbelievable in America. We were just talking about this in New Zealand. They don't have the medical ads like we do. You know? Oh my God, no. It's unbelievable. So there's this idea that when someone is sick, you take a pill for it. It just easily translated into the realm mm. of homeopathy. There's a pill for that. Mm. And imagine, and now we get into the, the conundrum of it, right? Because then that pill is available for sale over the counter or anywhere, really. Even some of the things, even some of the remedies that are not meant to be sold directly to the consumer. There now is, you know, there's a, I don't want to say a black market, but there's certainly a network where you can get any remedy that you want, regardless of your sort of knowledge of what to look for, to give it and to assess its action. To manage the case. and Yeah, and uh, yeah, you're right. And can we add to the conundrum is that we're sicker, people are sicker than they used to be. Mm. You know, I mean, an example that I use that always, it still shocks me now that I had this moment, but I would, it would have been when I first moved back to Philadelphia um, from Minnesota to practice here in 2006. And I'll never forget the first time I saw a kid with Crohn's disease Mm. was in 2006. Mm -hmm. And the kid was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And I thought, that this was like for the Guinness Book of World Records. You know what I mean? I thought this was, you don't see kids with autoimmune diseases now. Of course, they're rampant, but that was, that was the first time I had encountered it. And um, the parents said, yeah, there's an, you know, there was an entire specialty clinic at Children's Hospital. Now, of course, it could just be that those people were not seeking out homeopathy care. But even in the, you know, the, the large number of you know, clients that I had encountered in you know, prior years of practice, I had not seen that now autoimmune diseases in kids are, are rampant, which means, you know, those used to be diseases of maturity and now they happen in childhood, which means that the garden variety kids ick that they get, the crud, the coughs, the, you know, the little skin eruptions or whatever, 
Once you know your homeopathic philosophy, you recognize that those are then attached to, inextricably a part of what homeopaths refer to as chronic disease. Yeah. Or so, and that's through the lens of Hahnemann's chronic disease is not, mm. you know. So so is that because we we sometimes kind of I mean we lazily maybe accurately maybe lazily talk about acute and chronic disease. But there's there's two for me there's two pieces before that that are super entirely appropriate to be dealt with with home care. Right? Indispositions. Mm-hmm. Define. Do what people need to know what that means? A hangover. It's always the example. I knew you were going to say that. It's it's kind of things that you do to yourself, I've, things I've, that happen to you. Yeah, like, like an indisposition. Like I'm feeling nauseous because I just ate a whole block of ra- this chocolate. Raspberry chocolate. It's good. I had it. It's really good. But if imagine, right, you eat too much chocolate or we had a curry for lunch. That was delicious. A spicy curry. And then you've got domestic, simple first aid situations. Totally. Everyone should have for access to an instruction in yeah. how to deal with first aid, both practicalities, how to clean a wound, what not to do, but also those homeopathic remedies that are indispensable. Yeah. Bites, stings, cuts, burns, simple, uncomplicated, true acutes. Deal with them. And so these remedies for those two things are easily found over the counter. You go down to Whole Foods or wherever. Mm-hmm. But also, like you said before, for a mere $35, you can buy a pack at Oslocasinum. <laughs> so, okay, so I bet most people who are, well, everybody who's listening has heard of oxalococcinum because if you're listening to a homeopathy podcast. How do you say it? Oh, I say oxalococcinum. Oh, my God. What do you say? Oxalococcinum? Oxalococcinum. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Do totally. you say pedophilum? Or podophyllum? Neither. What do you say? I say... Podo. Podo. <laughs> I say podophyllum. 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 Yeah, not podophyllum. What's another one? Letum or letum? Letum. Yeah. Letum. No, I'd say letum, actually. Letum. I don't know on that one. <laughs> you know, I... I, when... co- I always say colophyllum. Not colophyllum. I don't no, think I... that's it. That's like saying calendula instead of calendula. Calendula. Yeah, (laughs) which I like. Um, The one that I can't, like, I'm sort of fine however people pronounce things. We kind of, like, at the school, we sort of, we kind of develop conventions, so we all. Not lachesis. That's the one I can't stand. I can't stand that. I can't get with lachesis for lachesis. And I've actually learned over the years to just ease up a little on carcinocinum because it's a different remedy, actually, to carcinosin. Oh, because it's brunette. Yes. Carcinocinum. I never realized that. I just thought it was ignorance. Mm -hmm. But it's not. Yeah. Apparently. But so what... Wait, are you talking about the carcinosin is the one that Phobister writes on? Yeah. 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 I mean, and now... I mean, it's it's actually a really interesting example because... I mean, I almost feel like in in a public space that this is going out to, to even talk about some of the intricacies of this might put... But it, okay, so without going into the, y'all who know, know why we're, you know, kind of putting the brakes on a little bit, but it brings us back to this idea of the conundrums. All right. So you get to the conundrum. Well, what, how do we, and again, 
no, no judgment. This is really, I think, a conversation we all need to have. Because can you imagine saying to a parent, you, you can't help your own kid if that parent has a remedy kit? But at the same time, sometimes giving a remedy that isn't well indicated or repeating something too much or whatever can actually make the case more difficult. Now, and, and we see this in our clinic and I, 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 I now feel... A lot. We see it a lot. Yeah. I, and when we talk to our friends in other countries... They can't believe what happens in America. And generally, they're like, America. But I don't think that's, that's not a good excuse. Well, the right? raise of the eyebrows. The I? raise of the eyebrows. I mean, Whoa. so, okay. So here's what I want to talk about, though. Oh, no, no. You're going to have another snack. Um, so, so, so we have sort of given ourselves this permission because the father of American homeopathy, Constantine Herring, right? Founder of the first school, the Allentown Academy, and, you know, kind of the, you know, and he just looks so cool. And <laughs> anyway, but he um, wrote the domestic physician. So it's like, well, the domestic physician, therefore. Mm. Okay. So one of the things that I, part of my research for my thesis, I mean, this has changed me just irrevocably as a homeopath, because you know, a phrase that I actually use, have been using in, in my notes of my thesis is you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. That's not a homeopathic expression? No. But, but it's describing something. Well, yeah, because, you know, what happens when... Well, anyway, we'll go there in a second. So in, in this research, right, so I've been going through, I have been reading every single journal, um, start to finish proceedings from conferences from, say, 1860-ish, 1850s, mm -hmm. on up to the 1880, around 1890. And it's, it takes a long time. So I'm going through all of these, you know, and I'm reading the arguments and the tensions. And, you know, we'll talk another time more about Herring and Lippy um, and their, you know, their challenges and their arguments, which are very, they're as real today as they were then, right? But Herring is such an interesting foil because he brought us so much, but his sort of medical experience and knowledge and his sort of um, adventurous spirit to incorporate everything new in science mm. is at times at odds with Hahnemann's philosophy, right? So we were talking about before, go back 15 minutes about sort of this time in the middle of the 19th century when there's a movement from sort of ideologies and philosophies of medicine and how things work into the application of therapeutics. And there are a lot of things that happen because homeopathy is inextricably the marriage of therapeutics to philosophy. Once you take these remedies outside of Hahnemann's philosophy, you're you're sort of barking up a tree that you're not really sure what's going to happen because we don't have all that knowledge. Yes, we have we have clinical data, but but and and you know a plug for our upcoming um, talks in January. <laughs> I'm doing a reprise on the history of 
Hahnemann's homeopathy, which is a reminder of his discovery and the and his sort of ability to extract spirit from matter and the very exacting instructions he gives for us to use it. And I always go back to, if if I don't understand what that means, and I have to ask myself, am I willing to take a risk to use medicine, the essentially spirit extracted from matter, in ways that deviate from the principles that that Hahnemann rolled up with, right? Take a breath. Wow. So you're saying, because I think I'm hearing you say this Am I saying it differently? Go on. But I don't know if I'm, I can articulate it back. Are you allowed to eat pecans during a podcast? Rogan has cigars and beer, doesn't he? We could do that. Anyway, go on. He has red wine and steak sometimes. <laughs> I totally lost my train. Oh, Homeopathy no, is. I heard you. I heard the last part, but you said something about homeopathy is growing at a time in medicine where it's moving from the application of speculation or no theory to the unfounded ap- theory. Yeah, unfounded theory. But Hahnemann's theory was different because it was grounded in. In the laws of nature. and But what the rise of science yeah. did was to focus on therapeutics and the action of drugs only. Yeah, well, uh, etiology, it, it, it's, it's basically you get into this reductionistic portion of scientific discovery and you're breaking everything down to its smallest possible identifiable part, right? Which becomes the germ, the bacteria, whatever, right? So, so anyway... So here's the thing. Yep. Now let's go back to herring, right? So this, um, the domestic physician and it giving us license to do whatever we want because back to the father of homeopathy. But here's the thing. In going through these proceedings, it was not <laughs> universally smiled upon. Right. So Lippy, so I'm reading now from, this is um, quoting from, oh geez, now I lost my note. It was from 1880. No, 1867. I'll find the I'll find the reference. Sorry, but he says um, this is during a this is an IHA conference, so the International Hanumanian Association, and um, they are having their this is their you know annual meeting minutes from their meeting. So this is a conversation where Lippy says he's talking about a um, a paper that was written, and he says there's a good lesson in this paper. That patient of yours did not follow you. If I understand right, mercury had been given. You selected the proper remedy. Why did that remedy not show any improvement in 12 hours? Because the patient's disease... Anyway, he goes on about the disease, but he says, um, the first lesson that we learn is... I'm sorry, he goes into more detail. The domestic physician and domestic remedies have done lots of harm in this world. If they give the wrong remedy, you have to overcome the effects of that remedy. Mm. In my families, there are very few domestic boxes anymore. Then someone named Dr. Bigler says, Dr. Lippy's warning here is a good one, but the difficulty is to avoid these dangers. It has been a great problem in my mind how to do it. I object to domestic boxes and my people, his patients I assume, understand my position regarding them. I take a firm stand with them in this respect, that if they dabble with diphtheria, they must not send for me. I will not prescribe for a case if they have made a single prescription. It is a very great difficulty and we can hardly avoid it unless we are strenuous in regard to it. 
But what will you find? You will find that they've given three or four or six doses of some remedy or several other remedies before you are called in. Just as sure as it is done, Dr. Lippi, as Dr. Lippi says, you will have a bad case. I find since I have followed the instructions of Dr. Gregg and have been careful in my prescribing, I have not, as a rule, been obliged to give more than one dose of medicine. Now, it may seem strange to you, but it's a fact. And no imagination or illusion about it, it is a fact. I've had in the West the worst abuses I've ever had in my life as far as my families who had boxes and were disposed to treat their own cases and then call me in to prescribe afterward or concerned. Yeah. And then he goes on. And, and, and I have in my notes loads more on this discussion. Now, as I said, no judgment and a conundrum. And you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. And what, what you know, we deconstruct that and essentially it's a, a case, we, we all deal with cases that have been messed with allopathic, conventional medications. We deal with it, you know, as best we can. And it's, you know, and it's <coughs> not as hard, I don't think But it's, it's interesting hard. to manage, and for me the issue is manage, because I'm not, you know, let's just talk about the management of, of, of cases as they unravel and begin to get better. Because that's the thing. I mean, it come, like if we just take that idea, right, the most important thing in homeopathy is case management. Mm, I agree. Second prescription and subsequent prescriptions. Second right. prescription being the one after the first remedy acted, mm. right? And most remedies act. And so, I mean, the implication here is that our work is cut out for us as, you know, skilled people. We've been doing this 25, 30 years. Our work is cut out for us now with these situations where so much has been taken homeopathically. I, I, I honestly don't know what to do about it. I have a couple of cases in my practice right now. And I have, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I, I lead with my empathy. I can't stand to see people suffer, especially kids. Mm. And when, and I was an anxious mom when my kids were little, I'll fully own that. I mean, I'm an anxious mom now. You are. We worry about our kids' health, and I think it's a universal sort of thing, right? So what do you do when somebody comes to you and you know that you could have done a much better job some time ago if their kid hadn't had, and I'm not exaggerating, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 remedies? Mm. I have never seen, had never seen until recently, people come with a spreadsheet of what they have taken. These cases... You know, I've got somebody in my practice. I showed you that email and I said, I, I am so afraid that I'm being harsh mm. because I don't want to give a remedy because I cannot tell what ha is happening because of all the prescribing. Mm. But what do we do? Like, what do we do about that? And, and I also don't want people to worry. I also cannot stand when we drive through fear. Mm. You know, we cannot lead with fear. So if you're freaking out and going, oh my gosh, my kid, or I did this, just... I'll give you my version of absolution. Mm. You can't look back. You can only look forward. Well, there's a degree to which the remedy and homeopathy is forgiving. It's, you know, it I, is. I disagree. You don't think it's forgiving? Uh, I am seeing now cases where you've got people who have complex autoimmunity where it's not forgiving. I almost don't want to say, I don't almost don't want to say this in a in a public space, but mm. it's, you know... Okay, so we're talking about conundrums though, right? So we've got a conundrum of, there is a word on the street 
homeopathic remedies are safe, full stop. Yeah. And it should be homeopathic remedies are safe, comma, when used appropriately. Mm. Like anything. Mm. Water is safe, mm. but drink enough water and all kinds of things can Lettuce. Happen. I mean, lettuce. lettuce. It's theoretically safe. Curry. Delicious. <laughs> but too much of it. So... Right. So that's really interesting. So 140 years ago, 150 years ago, yep. they're having the same conversation. Yep. And that's really interesting because um, that's uh, so two physicians in a conference talking together, one saying, yep, I don't go anymore. And it's really interesting because I would have told you recently, you know, about my, uh, about getting grumpy with a, a client that just, it's like um, first reaction to anything is to hit it with a, a dose of something. Now, I've, you know, and my job is to educate, educate, educate. Right. You know, just are you aware that what you've just done is follow a remedy reaction or at least as this aspect of the case management which is going on has been occurring, you've now done this. Yeah. You know? And so... It is, it, it's almost as if there's a lack of acknowledgement of the importance of case management and a total understanding and a total um, belief that it's all good, you know, that, yep. that homeopathy is safe. What, it what is are, safe. I think we need to say it is Well, safe. it is. So here, here's, this is what's interesting too, because again, I want to, I want to have at this from the standpoint of conundrum. Okay. Oh, and also, wait, one thing, because you know what we need to do a podcast on is talking about acute versus chronic issues. Uh -huh. um, and we should get Priscilla on. Priscilla Metters has written the oh. best book on, and I don't, I don't say this lightly. She, and just because she is a student of ours, it is the best book on the intro to homeopathy. What's it called? No idea. But it's I've bright. got it on my desktop and I will find it and say, but we should have her on because she, the way she talks about acute versus chronic in the way that a, just a garden variety consumer who's learning about homeopathy needs to hear it. Mm. And I think sometimes someone who's newer to homeopathy has all the facility and language because it's, it's the way they need to hear it. You know, we talk about it to homeopaths. Mm. Um, anyway, and she's adorable and funny and her writing is so good. I love it. Okay, so, so this is from... What's his name? The domestic physician, Laurie. Laurie. I, this one I didn't know about. I didn't even know this was on the shelf. So, um, Got two copies. Homeopathic treatment is always safe, rapid, and effectual when correctly applied, or it is void, that is, nature unaffected, when it depends upon mistaken hypotheses. I know where, in bold, enjoin the layman who has means and immediate access to efficient homeopathic professional advice to undertake the treatment of dangerous diseases without it. I only endeavor in a measure to provide for those who do not possess such advantages. I think that's great, and I like that as a middle ground, because I don't think you should say to someone, you can't figure out how to deal with a bee sting or an earache, especially if you don't have access to care. Now, mm. access to care has gotten better, but access to quality care still is somewhat suspect. But... But the part that I don't think gets discussed, and I wonder if 140 years ago, there was as much worry about chronic disease like we see it today, autoimmunity. No, well, no, definitely not. Right? Fully developed Sora, mm. a multi-miasmetic, you know, convoluted disease that needs to be picked apart over time in order to ensure safety. Let me give you a metaphor. Do you remember before we went to New Zealand? Yeah. 
you decided on the night before we're flying. Uh oh, I know to, what you're gonna say. To get my knitting ready. Get your knitting ready. Yes. Right? And so folks, if I can paint a picture. Well, these are homie pets, they're gonna be knitters. They're gonna know. So I'm gonna get the words wrong. But you went and bought three skeins. Good, 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 yeah. All right. And you came back and then you set up your umbrella, whatever, <laughs> yep. machine. And the ball winder. And the ball winder. Yep, yep. And then you clipped it onto the table and then it fell off. Like and I then do. It, right. You clipped it on again and it fell off. And then you called me. And then I said, what are you doing, honey? And you and said, I said, what do you think I'm doing? It's 11 o'clock at night and we've got to fly and da, da, da. And, and I said, so, I need knitting to do. I'm traveling. I have to. All right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so you start to make your ball of wool and then the machine's not working. Mm-mm. Right? And so we've got... I think I'm the only person on the planet. We have a ball of wool that it's a... I mean, it is a dog's breakfast. (laughs) It looks like a magpie nest. It's unbelievable. On the third year, on the third generation of magpies that have been brought up and were born there. (laughs) And it had spit in it as well and whatever else Well, do you know the analogy that Jeremy uses about... uh, Jeremy Sherrill, we're talking about about dealing with a chronic case. He says it's like a ball of wool Mm -hmm. that the cat's been playing with all day, dipped in marmalade. (laughs) It's like the best analogy, right? It is, too. Anyway, um, my father and I spent probably... (laughs) Because I brought the knotted wool. I traveled around the world. And so she's sitting knitting and doing... You're doing great work. And then my father and I couldn't stand it anymore. And so we started to unpick the ball of wool. Mm -hmm. And then it took a whole evening for the two of us to then create a new ball of wool. Such a bonding moment. Oh, it it was lovely. Oh, my God. Can I tell you about the... um, Did you finish your metaphor? But what does it relate to? You just told a story about wool. Oh, and I didn't actually didn't get actually to the punchline? No. What was the punchline? It's your metaphor. Uh, it's um, it's picking apart that... Yeah. The know, complexities of case management. Yeah, it is. And and it's such a skill. And, uh, and, and the satisfaction in guiding someone through the highways and the byways and the new symptoms and the old symptoms and the aggravations and the proving symptoms... Right. Of well-selected remedies over a period of time. That's it. And getting them to a new state of... Uh, restoring them to an old state of health or getting them to a new state of health, depending on your, your interpretation of aphorism, whatever, <laughs> um, is so deeply satisfying. It is totally deeply satisfying. And can we talk... Since we we were... This is getting long, so we need to wrap this up. We could do more sure, another time. 45 minutes. I know, but it's the solstice. We're going up. <laughs> all right see you bye I think no i want to talk about the video thing is a totally different well i i, I okay we can do that but can we talk about the economics for just a second because oh, sure. i would actually can we save that for the acute chronic maybe we'll do that one next all right. and then we can talk about it oh, that's I a good idea a, let's do one next week yeah let's do another one so um i i think it's really interesting though mm. That one of the challenges that we have in homeopathy is around the economics of it, right? So, for example, oxalococcinum. We started to talk about that, or coxinum, however you say it. Okay. 35 bucks. Well, wait, hold on. You get... (laughs) So, we were talking about this earlier. So, it's 200C potency. (laughs) Duck. What is it? Duck? Um, French duck. It's a very specific duck. Yeah. Uh, heart and liver. Yeah. Yeah. That is good for symptoms of cold and flu. Mm, I mean, from the clinical trial, symptoms of uh, um, 
subacute symptoms um, as the as those uh, as a flu comes on. Yeah. Yeah. Pap and Furley. What? That's who did the. Yeah, two the studies. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So here's the thing: mm. you've got a 200C vial. Just like every other 200C vial that you have lasts you almost a lifetime. (laughs) But if you go to Costco, you can buy it by the crate. Right. And people take a whole 200C. It's not a half dram, whatever it is. It's probably a... It's a dose. It's brilliant marketing. Genius. And God bless them for, you know, for making up the slack on the money that isn't made on individual doses. I mean, and we haven't even talked about... The, the true dollars that need to go into all the sort of evidentiary buildup to have remedies be sold, you know, OTC, both from the pharmacy standpoint, the marketing standpoint, all of that. But if you think about it, there's an inherent challenge financially in homeopathy because if you think about a practice, people get better, they don't need you anymore, Right. If you, and, and with the remedies, because it's about the minimum dose, you technically don't have to sell a lot of it. I mean, if you think about like, just thinking about LM or Q potencies, well, okay, we for ease with our clients have them order it already made up in a dispensing bottle. But theoretically, you could have, you know, your LM kit and have a gazillion doses of LMs in your one little kit. I mean, it's, right? So so if you think about the, the business model, these, these pharmacies, I mean, I really feel for them because they're at odds with what, like really the true homeopathic intervention really is a minimum. I never thought they'd be, I don't think they're tearing themselves apart on the inside. I mean, they've got their market over the counter and then they've got their professional market and some clearly support and only do over the counter Right. And and some support the professional and do it really beautifully, but they don't make their money there. They don't make their money on no. the tr- the true treatment of disease. So the OTC market is where the money is made. Totally. Okay, that's great. And I love that, you know, there's like all the rub-on stuff, whatever, yeah. But what happens when you've got our deepest acting remedy of sulfur, OTC, mm-hmm. buy it at Whole Foods, and it says on it, what does it say? Skin eruptions or something like this. Mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever. How many times have we seen somebody who has, ha- who has taken way too much of a deep-acting soric remedy have a big flare-up, say, of skin symptoms? Because you've got to know how to use this powerful medicine. So it's a, it's a conundrum, right? We love when we can say to our clients, oh, you have this acute, go get this at Whole Foods. It's perfect. It's convenient for it's sure. It's totally convenient. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have the pharmacies the way that you get in, you know, in the UK, you know, go to Ainsworth's or go to, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, Nelson's. Nelson's. Helios. And Helios. You can buy retail and you can go and they even do, they have people who are doing, you know, consultations there. You go down a little stairway and go into the consultation room. So there's a way that we've got this, we, we like have the best uh, possibilities, but we haven't managed ourselves really well. But, like, you don't want to tell people that they're wrong. And we also want people to learn about homeopathy. And how many times is there the beginner's luck? Somebody has, like, all these amazing things happen when they first discover homeopathy. Mm. But, like, that time period, it's like, you know, when I hear somebody who doesn't have a lot of knowledge, medical knowledge, risk knowledge, 
homeopathy knowledge who says, yeah, I've been working with my friend who has a cancer or Parkinson's or whatever. It's like, wait, what? Mm. Do you know? Because then what happens if, forget about like the legal ramifications for the profession, but what if somebody gets hurt? Like, what would you do, right? Because, you know, what is it? Unconscious incompetence. How bad would somebody feel if they inadvertently, like, messed up? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, that tears me apart. I do you worry about uh, No, because I spend most of my life conscious about my incompetence. I'm not I, talking I about you, I'm talking about in the, yeah, in I mean, the wild. Well, you said, how would I deal with How would I what? No, I mean, do you worry about this? This doesn't keep you up at night. No, I worry worry about other... Uh, Look, I do, to an extent, worry about that. You worry about the All Blacks. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Um, That's that's the New Zealand rugby team. I I worry... uh, Do I worry? Yeah, I do worry, but I cannot control that. That that situation that you just spoke about. But what if we have these conversations? I can weigh in. I can weigh in and have a bit more... um, uh, make contribution to the students that are studying. Yeah, we can teach them excellent case management. We can start to make the transition from unconscious incompetence to uh, conscious incompetence, which is a tough place to be. That's a tough one, but that's usually second year. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then there's that beautiful seamless transition into conscious. Um, did I say conscious incompetence? I've lost track. Conscious competence. Yeah. And, and that one is where you've got a, a, a person that's got their, a, a prudent practitioner that has their hand on the handbrake, that yes. understands case management, that seeks supervision, you know, that goes through the necessary steps of being educated in a, in a, in a, in a powerful thing. Totally. And it's... Because it is, it's powerful and amazing medicine, which everybody, yeah. I mean, people who have, who've come along, right? So, okay, so we're going to wrap up because it's... We're 53 minutes in, and it's 6 o'clock, and it's the solstice. And it's stag and dough night in our town. (laughs) So so I want to leave this on a positive note, though. And I I think the the positivity is that when we, you know, when you turn the light on, you can have the conversation. And I think conversations that can take place in non-judgmental spaces are really important, Hmm. right? No judgment, no nothing except helping educating people and making high quality care available you know i mean and that's what hhn right so as part of home foundation we have the homeopathy help network and you know we've seen over four thousand cases since we started in march of 2020 and we're actually working on how do we expand it so that we can train up more practitioners you know because getting hands-on supervision for real-time acute care can be challenging and then being able to scale up so that we can serve more people, right? It's really hard when we can't actually take care of all the people that need help. And then, of course, people resort to doing what... If, like, if we're saying, don't take risks because there can be an outcome that you're not expecting, but we can't provide a solution, well, what are you going to do? Say, don't do anything, right? No. That's the conundrum. Yeah. And there's also another part of it, but it's not a, an uplifting part of it. Then let's not talk about it. Okay, but therefore, I want to talk about... <laughs> Losing faith in our institutions as a phenomena that's taking place in, in, in our time mm. at some point. Okay. Because I think there's a legitimate reason for folks to want to take back um, agency over over their health. A hundred percent. And their education and so many... What do, what do you think you're doing? That's Hildegard Bing and she's oh. back. 
There's Hildy's ass. <laughs> you got a cat butt. Sorry, everyone. It's feeding time at the it's zoo, as time. we said. So but you understand what I'm saying? I totally do. And yeah. and you know what? And it circles us back to where we well, started. Well, I think that's just uplifting because I totally support that. Yeah. You know, that empowerment that takes place. Yeah, 100%. Mm. But, but isn't it better? Like, let's say that, you know, like kids should be able to get to where they need to go when they need to get there. But someone who's seven shouldn't be driving a car. <laughs> This is this is coming from a person who has two adult children who don't drive. Yes. So maybe my metaphor is a little. No, bit... it's a good one. I sh- I'll get my license soon. I promise. Um, I want to know if anybody actually like if this as a video is compelling, or do we just go back to our upstairs space where I can just have my cozy sweater on and a scarf and a beanie indoors and not think about the fact that I didn't actually do a face. Give us your feedback. Um, folks, take care. It is um, it's solstice night. So yeah. enjoy whatever you do on solstice night. And uh, we'll the, see you soon. It's the longest night. It's the longest day Which if means you are living tomorrow, elsewhere. Well, yeah. But here, tomorrow is the day where there's more light. It is. The beginning. I'm excited. Me too. See ya. Ciao.